Welcome to Plenary Session. I'm Dr. Vinay Prasad. I'm an associate professor at the University of California, San Francisco. My interests are medicine, hematology, oncology, and health policy, and that's what you're going to get on this podcast. This week, we got a great episode in store for you. We've got an interview, and I think you're going to really like this. But first, a plug. If you like this podcast, check out the new website, www.plenarysessionpodcast.com. We've got show notes. We've got trial summaries. We've got everything you could want on the website. Follow us on Twitter at plenary underscore session. Write a review for us on the iTunes store. And become a supporter for this podcast on Patreon. Patreon backers get access to the slides for presentations I give on Plenary Session. You also get a few bonus lectures. And with that, let's start the show. I'm back in Plenary Session, real life edition, (laughs) joined with Marty, Marty McCary. That's right. Good to see you, Vinay. Did I say it right? You said it exactly right. Great to see you. (laughs) It's great to see you. It's great to see you. Uh, We were just talking about names. And, you know, I think I, I do... I do want to pronounce people's names the way they prefer to pronounce them. So, Marty, um, people will know you. I mean, I don't think you're going to be a stranger to this audience. Um, you're somebody who has worked at the intersection of on- oncology, policy, and these issues for quite some time. You're a surgical oncologist. You practice at Johns Hopkins University. Um, you have a master's in public health. Uh, you teach. You have another appointment. It's in the School of Business, isn't it? That's right, in the business school, John Kerry Business School. In the business school. And you are somebody interested in, at the intersection of medicine, cost, and policy. Is that fair to say? Yeah, you know, when you pick a specialty or an area in medicine in school, they don't give you the option of medicine as a whole, you know, mm. or the whole system, or all specialties, you know. They kind of tell you that if you like everything, then family medicine or, you know, internal medicine maybe. But what if you're interested in, like, the culture of medicine or how we deal with uncertainty or how we publish, how we share information, how we train our young, you know, those are the sort of big uh, issues that maybe fall under public policy. Yeah. And so in the School of Public Health, I think I've broadcast to the young interested folks that if you're interested in public policy, that's what my team's working on. That's what I'm excited about. Uh, that's funny you say that because, you know, I'm excited about those issues too. Yeah. And I think, um, you know, you're right that there is no path that people have set out for that. So you got to kind of break your own path. Is that fair to say? Yeah, it's, you know, it's like COVID. Like who's the right person for COVID? Is it virologist, epidemiologist, infectious disease person, <laughs> yeah. public policy yeah. person, someone who knows ed- business, education, yeah. poverty, society, uh, how to get bills through Congress, you know. And the reality is we have created so many compartments that we haven't really thought about who's looking after the system as a whole. And I wish we could find a cool name for that because that would be what I'd encourage people to go into. I, I agree wholeheartedly. You know, it's funny you say the right qualification for such a person is depends on whether you agree with them or not, Marty. <laughs> <laughs> right, right. If, if you agree with them, it doesn't matter. They're an amateur savant. And if you disagree, you know, they're not a card-carrying ID infectious disease epidemiologist, <laughs> right. you know. When I was in the grad school, I remember there was a social uh, group, and I met somebody. This was at Harvard, and they, I said, "Well, we, we know what do you, um, what are you working on here at Harvard?" And she said, "Well, I'm a uh, chemistry foc- uh, specializing in large particle lasers." And I said, "Oh, that's interesting." And okay. met, you know, met her and had some interesting conversations. And then later on that afternoon, met someone else at the same event, 
And I said, what do you specialize in? And he said, oh, I'm, I'm focused on small particle, phys uh, small particle lasers in chemistry. And I said, oh, that's interesting. I just met Amanda. Do you guys know each other? And he goes, no, that's large particle. Totally different, <laughs> totally different. <Right? laughs> and that's how we are in medicine, yeah. you know? And we pigeonhole people into these things. What if you're, what if you're interested in environmental exposures that cause cancer? Good we, luck. We don't know what to do with you, right? It's like, oh, maybe oncology, and before you know it, you're learning chemo protocols. And what if you're interested in school lunch programs instead of the bariatric surgery approach to obesity? Right. Right. What if you're interested in cooking classes as a way to address diabetes instead of just throwing insulin at people? What if you're interested in the role of sleep as it relates to high blood pressure, but you don't want to be a sleep medicine doctor, but you see how the underlying causes of illness bring people to care in a way that you, we can address them. And it's not preventive medicine, right? It's not pre no. preventive medicine is learning when the breast cancer screenings start. Sure. It's almost society in medicine. It's interesting you say that. So, I mean, the, the examples you gave were for folks suffering from type 2 diabetes, some instruction on how to buy and prepare food. For folks um, interested in combating obesity, um, more concern around the types of food we serve children in school. Now, uh, I guess some people might put that in a social epidemiology bucket. You know, in France, they do a lot of those things. And, you know, we spend, I think, a pittance on childhood nutrition in, in schools as to what they do in France. They serve food on real plates. You know, they teach people how to eat properly. Um, we serve highly processed food that is subsidized and, you know, has some 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 pork barrel deal, which is why those <laughs> foods are given to children. That is typically not considered medicine, I guess, because it doesn't consolidate wealth in the hands of fewer shareholders. And, you know, it's interesting. The, <clears throat> the frontiers in medicine are similarly off the radar in terms of where people can direct their careers. So you have to almost patch a bunch of things together, right? If you, yeah. and, and look at the microbiome right now, for example. Probably, I don't know what your thought is, but I think it's probably the greatest frontier in, in medicine. You're excited by it. Yeah, I'm really excited about it. Now I have a background in gastrointestinal okay. medicine surgery. So, I mean, that, but separate from that, here's, um, what is it? A billion bacteria, different types of bacteria. We don't really know the types. We, a couple of them we know, like C. diff will just take over, right? right? So we get little tiny glimpses, you know, kind of like they thought they saw some UFOs recently. <laughs> like that's about our understanding of the microbiome, <laughs> right? If those are real yeah, intelligent. Right. And um, it's very rudimentary the way we classify. Yes, yes, and it's also, it's like the approach too. Like yes. I, I met this woman in, um, in, in, in doing the research for the book, The Price We Pay met this woman in Dallas and she is a NICU um, doctor and she's an immigrant so she's a third culture kid and you know third culture kids you know as, as we are, as we are. You, you tend to be more you feel more like a guest in society and sometimes you're a little more observant like when I was a kid we'd go to Friday Night Lights in this small town in rural Pennsylvania and I wouldn't think this is awesome my thought is isn't it interesting how everybody loves this sport of football on Friday nights where people are clashing into each other? Interesting. And I wasn't opposed to it. It's no, no, just no. you digest things differently, right? Because and I you're think, a child of an immigrant. I think so. I think, I mean, no. that's what people have said is that when you, 
you know, feel like you're a guest in a society. Yeah. A little bit of identity crisis. Like, what am I? I was born in England. Am I English? My parents are Egyptian. Am I Egyptian? I don't relate to that culture. I don't relate to England. I don't totally relate to. And you feel a little bit like, uh, I'm going to observe and take it in. Uh, I'm sort of playing amateur psychiatrist on myself. No, I'm I way off the charts. I, I think you're on to something because I think a lot of people who, you know, our parents are from, your parents from Egypt, my parents from India, grew up in this country. Um, of course, I identify as an American, I'm sure, and I think you do too, but, um, you know, there's some parts of American culture that you feel as an observer. It's not the kind of stuff that your your dad is talking about back home. My dad isn't talking about American football. He, he wasn't that interested in it. Uh -huh. Yeah, yeah. I mean, you just almost sort of want to educate yourself on the rules as opposed to there, there being this assumption about. But anyway, um, this doctor yes. um, noticed how babies were doing better when one of the doctors did a delayed clamping of the umbilical cord after the blood was done pulsating. And she noticed a that- A small observation. A small observation. Sure. But over her career, she's seen some literature come out sure. suggesting that the babies need less blood transfusions when they're premature and you let the blood pulsate and then do what they call delayed cord clamping. Sure. She noticed that the baby's stress hormones were higher when the babies were immediately separated from the mom at birth. Um, she noticed that when they stick a thermometer in the in the baby's butt immediately upon birth. That's a little traumatic and the stress hormones go. And so she started this protocol to give moms the baby back immediately for skin to skin time to sort of put the baby in this natural incubator, if you will, of holding a baby, sure. not wash the baby. Sure. Let that, you know, the bacteria that the baby comes out with colonize the otherwise sterile GI tract Right? We, this is stuff we don't even understand, but there, to her, it just seems like this is something natural. And she did this protocol, maximize skin to skin time, four hours, six hours, and as long as they can safely hold the baby immediately, delayed cord clamping, not washing the baby on the first day, um, and some other things. And guess what? NICU, NICU stays were down. The NICU length of stay was down. The blood pressure control was better the amount of vasopressors they were on were less, the transfusions were less, the NICU length of stay was short, all of these incredible outcomes, and she's published all these things. And to me, it's like, can we learn from that? What is that method of learning that's not a randomized controlled trial, but it's observation, wisdom, you maybe get a little bit of a consensus, you try something that looks like a best practice, and it's not demonic, okay? That's what we were taught is that, oh, that's anecdotal, that's horrible. You know what? All good ideas come with a pretest hypothesis. Maybe that's a good one. It's interesting. I guess in a way, you know, I guess what she has championed is actually um, omitting doing the things that we had artificially inserted. Mm -hmm. uh, we had artificially inserted the rapid cord clamping. We had artificially inserted withdrawal of infant from mother, washing infant, I don't know what else they do. Yeah, you know, literally so insert a thermometer in the thermometer, patient's butt. Squirt that silver <laughs> sulfadine stuff in their eyes or, you know, whatever they do. I actually, right. I actually right. outside my expertise. However, those were all interventions that were deployed. And in a way, what she's championing is, is actually omitting some of those interventions and restoring it to what probably happened for, let's just say, a few thousands and millions of years, perhaps. <laughs> yeah. So, Marty, I want to come back. I want to come to your book. The price we pay now out in paperback but i want to talk a little bit first about your origin story 
You know, people see you here and there, and I want to ask you about where they might see you because you do. You, you're on television sometimes. You're you you comment. Um, you're also the editor in chief of MedPage Today. Mm -hmm. You're also a professor at Johns Hopkins University. Um, you're a practicing surgeon. You're in in the school of business. You're focused on policy. Um, it's quite a lot, Marty. You know, and um, and um, but I, but I, what I want to know is how you got there. Um, you know, maybe. Um, Maybe walk us through a little bit about sort of what you think the key decisions points were for you. Um, you were just telling me that you know you come from a medical family um, and uh, you went to medical school. What made you do surgery? When did you discover you know what made you do an MPH at such an at such an early point in your career? And how did you think you were going to put it together? <laughs> Tell me about that. You know, it's funny. Um, I find myself as a surgical oncologist that has a big interest in the healthcare system, the culture of medicine. Um, the business of medicine and um, I almost see our our team now that does uh, I'm mostly research our team is kind of a rapid response team if you will when opioids hit we responded really quickly and I think we should have research teams that aren't you know locked into these eternal grants and can move quick right with opioids we did that with COVID we did that um, I wanted to be a missionary doctor. Um, what do you mean by that? I wanted to, you know, maybe go to Kenya where uh, we had a, a, a relationship with a doctor there who came to our church a lot growing up. And he was an orthopedic surgeon, but he did everything over there at Kajabi Medical Center. Um, I went, I, tr I tried a couple times um, in med school going to different countries. I really sort of realized it's not that simple. Like you get this fantasy idea. Yeah. You know, you can come helicopter in. in and save lives and then go back, but it's yeah. not so simple. It's it's I mean it's like the diametrically opposed to that, right? <laughs> <laughs> it's like you're gonna do more you do most anything you do is gonna be harmful, you know, unless you have a, a profound respect for the local co doctors, culture, ways of doing things. And so anyway, I took that in and you know, I um but someone I mean, had that's, to, an, that's an important observation because I think a lot of people don't recognize that and they still kind of have those kind of aspirations <laughs> and but you talk to a lot of doctors in the mission you know overseas and they'll tell you yeah we get some you know some clown helicopters in here and yeah. just, you know thinks they know what they're doing then they have complications and we're stuck dealing with it I see. Um, but anyway um, you know I'm just so dependent on cat scans I don't even what do you do with a breast lump when you don't have any imaging yeah. do you take it out you know what's what's the threshold to take it out we have no training in that whatsoever right yeah. our algorithms don't fit so, um, but anyway, all that to say back when I was a early student and I had this interest, somebody told me, um, surgery, you can't really read. That's a technical skill. So if you want to go into the field, learn, um, do a surgical training, and then you can try to study and learn about other things and, and other uh, aspects of medicine. So I said, you know, I'm going to go into surgery. And then my, my mentors warned me. You know, you have all these outside interests on how, you know, things we do in medicine and preventing errors and all this stuff. Um, put all that on the shelf because you're going to have like no time or there's not going to be any interest in that sort of topic while you're a surgical resident. You have to eat, drink and sleep surgery. Uh -huh. So I did that for six years, just eat, drink and sleep surgery. And I had all these stories and I was dying to just talk about them and process them. And I wrote them all down, and that was the book, Unaccountable. In the, you know, in retrospect, um, I didn't realize how much damage was done to me. Things that we were never prepared to do. A young kid comes in in a trauma bay 
and you're breaking bad news a second later. You would sometimes wake up in the morning and you're, you know, you're, how old are you? 28 years old. You're not prepared for this stuff. Some horrific trauma comes in and you wake up in the middle of the night, you're sleep deprived, you try to do it as best you can. Break bad news to a mom who, you know, just lost a kid. You go back to bed, you wake up. I think I had a horrible nightmare last night, you know, that this happened. And it, it affects you, you know, and you get some little PTSD. I think we all get a little PTSD in medicine at every level. And I remember being in the ICU trying to deal with issues I was totally unprepared for. Um, anyway. Uh, Part of this, you think, was the culture of when you trained, the late 1990s, early 2000s? Yeah, yeah. T profound sleep deprivation. Yes. You were, this is before 80-hour work rule. There wasn't you, 80 hours you left in the rearview mirror. They announced it my first day as an attending faculty. I see. So I, <laughs> I remember them saying, you know, somebody asked, how are we going to get staffing then to enable the residents to only work 80 hours? Well, the faculty are now going to kick in. I'm like, oh, great. I really <laughs> picked the inflection point. <laughs> yeah, just the right year to finish. So wait, but what you're telling me is you felt like as somebody who was a product of that culture, so many surgeons of your generation tell me, things were better then, that's when men were giants, that's when women were giants. Um, but what you wish to suggest is they may be overlooking the fact that that stuff does damage to who you are. It does, and that and that's, I think we need to be honest about it. Those That's what, why I'm so encouraged about what I see now, the transition and the change. You know, I, I remember in our pancreatic cancer multidisciplinary conference at Hopkins, some patient um, had pancreatic cancer and an unrelated person their loved one with them said what are the odds I develop pancreatic cancer and we're like well there's no heredity you know you're not related so they're like yeah I understand but what are the chances a person like me will develop pancreatic cancer and then you know everyone started throwing out well it's you know 20% more likely if you have a history of tobacco use and 15% more likely and they're just like what are the odds so someone took this question back to the multidisciplinary clinic and said, by the way, this family, this, this loved one has this question, what are the chances someone develops pancreas cancer in their lifetime, basically at random? No one could answer, this is like all the top pancreatic experts, you know, at the hospital, which is, you know, the leader in this area. And then finally, you know, I was determined, I was like, we have to, if we can't produce this answer, we don't think like this, but this is how patients think. And actually, this is the type of thinking that's very useful for COVID. But what you're asking yeah. is, the patient's sibling is saying, my sibling has pancreas cancer. What is my, from this point forward to the end of my life, lifetime risk of getting pancreas cancer? And and does the fact I have a first degree affected sibling adjust that probability? That's right. Yes. So it's one in 67. That's the chance. But we, nobody knew that, you know? And it's funny. That's, when, that's a little bit higher than what I would have said off the top of my head, but interesting. Yeah, yeah. fourth leading cause of... Um, uh, of cancer death. Of cancer death, yeah. yeah. Maybe 40,000 new diagnoses a year. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Okay, and you're, and you're doing lifetime risk. It's an interesting... Okay, so this is this is an interesting question. And, and your point is well taken, which is you could do pancreas surgery your whole life <laughs> and you don't know the answer to the question, right? Yeah, or not even know what... You know, I do this operation called the Whipple. How much does it cost? I, I, it's amazing. I've been doing that operation for 15 years before I decided I need to get an answer to that question. Uh, I can tell you 500 things about the pancreas, but not how much it costs to take out the head of the pancreas. So these are the sort of questions I am fascinated by. And I am invigorated by a research team 
of millennials, and if you know anything about millennials, social justice is a generational value. They want to be a part of something bigger. So as we uncovered this pattern of charge master prices being basically a modern day form of price gouging, hospitals shaking people down in collections and with predatory payment plans that are not financial aid, they're just predatory, and suing people in court. As we discovered this stuff, my students who are millennials are like, Marty, we want to go to the courthouse and look and see how many of these records there are. And then we find records and then it's, we want to call. hospitals litigating against yes. families who can't pay. Yeah, so in, two years ago in the Journal of the American Medical Association, we exposed this practice in an article of Virginia hospitals, all the hospitals in the state. About a third of them sued patients. Some of them sued the socks off of people. In one city, uh, a s small local community hospital, I wouldn't say city, a town of 36,000 people, they'd filed 25,000 lawsuits you know, over five years. This town has been terrorized by the local nonprofit hospital. Yeah. They want to do something. The students are like, Marty, you know, I'd say I'm going to go to the courthouse on Friday and I'm going to talk to people. I don't know what's going on. I want to find out. They say, we're going with you. They meet these people. They want to sit down and talk to them, get their phone number, help them. So this is how I feel so inspired right now in medicine. These Boy, yeah. young people want to do something. I guess... Um... You know, it's the eternal truth, which is the great thing about being young is uh, you see all the injustice in the world and you still believe you can change it. And the tough thing about getting old is you believe it less and less, you know, that you, you think these are intractable, which is a, a sort of a failing of getting old. But let me ask you this. Okay, so, so what you're saying is before you went into surgery, you have broad interests. You always had broad interests. You were always interested in these questions. You're a surgeon in the surgical life you pour yourself into. How did you know when you came out of that surgical life that you would be able to have a career where you did these things? There was no example, Marty. I don't think, you know, now people think about you, they think about Gawande, you think about, you know, these kinds of people. But 30, or, you know, 20 years ago, 15 years ago, you know, you know, you know that was like if it had any extra years. Um, there, there was no, I mean, surgeons were surgeons. Surgeons were, you know, they, were, they weren't doing this kind of work. So how did you think about crafting it for yourself? I knew that the opportunities when I came out, when I was sort of uh, in, on the faculty and as an attending, would be different from the opportunities at the time that I was studying. So I didn't feel like I had to figure out what I'm going to do. I, I just wanted to understand really good research methodology. Like I considered you to be a black belt in research methodology, um, tearing down studies, understanding what it's saying, what it's not saying, what we need to do. Um, so I figured if I could learn that, those basic skills, then I could, you know, go out there and try to do something. But you're right. All the surgeons and Atul Gawande, I think it was a year uh, before me. He, um, he and I got an MPH, knowing we were going to go into surgical residency. Mm -hmm. Every surgeon in the world had told us, "This is not going to work. It doesn't fit. There's no role for an MPH." And my dean at, at the time, still, uh, like right up until graduation, told everybody, "Yeah, we got one guy going to surgery, and he's doing his MBA." And I was like, no, it's a, it's a master's in public health. It's not an MBA, sir. Okay, he wants to go into hospital administration. No, no, I don't want to go into <laughs> hospital administration, right? And then it's like, what do, you, what do we do with these people that... But I think, you know, if you want to carve a path, there's, there's good stuff out there. But then I'll tell you, the toughest thing is, and it sounds easy, but especially when you're young, but in real life, it's hard, is to say, I don't know if you've had this decision point, maybe it's too personal a question, is... Will I accept a lower pay to be able to explore the stuff I'm passionate about? 
Because to dial down a surgical practice is a pay cut, no doubt. But either way, we're getting paid well, I felt, you know. And so that was a big step because I see all these young doctors going into practice and they all say when they're signing the contracts, oh, this hospital are giving me one day of protected time or two days of protected time. Look, you will operate or see as many patients as you want to if you want to see more. And if you let the money, you know, become a, a tail you're chasing, you will completely shut down all these outside interests. So, um... That's a very astute point. I don't think people talk about it enough, which is that, um, you know, I always see these people talk about, oh, I'm going to do three days a week of clinic and I'm going to protect two days to do my passion project. Sure, you feel that way. Then you get dropped in a system where you see that you are getting paid 30% of your salary is tied to RVU. And you'll see, and you'll, and then you will feel like, Oh, those two days are very costly passion days. Right. right? I can make a hundred thousand more. Yeah. The mortgage payments are coming in. Right. Or and or I want to go on a nice vacation or I want to have a bigger house or I want to have a car. Um and, and and worst of all, all those things is not as bad as and my colleague is doing it. And that guy over there, he makes a hundred grand more than me. That woman over there, she makes more than me. And that feeling, you know, that you you know, keeping up with the, the, the Joneses, um, motivates a lot of people to give up those passion projects. So what you're saying is you did not succumb to that. I did for a while, and then I just realized that the I don't want to do this until I die. I see. Um, because there's something that's cool when a patient begs you to operate on them, or a referring doctor trusts you, right? They're coming to you because they trust you. And you want to just say yes to everything that comes in the door. But the reality is I have excellent junior partners that I trained, that I tr would trust with my life, who could be busier at the time they could why not pass it on to them I'll take a little less pay okay maybe I'm gonna do 15 less operations next year maybe that's gonna be 20,000 I don't know what the number is sure. why not pursue the stuff I'm passionate about so I just had a rare opportunity I think to do that plus when you get you know, to a certain point with grant funding and tenure, you get a little more flexibility. Okay, of course. So the early years, I guess what you're saying is, you knew what you were interested in, you knew what questions excited you, um, and you were willing to potentially, you know, uh, although it sounds like you did that later, but you were willing to, you know, money wasn't everything for you. And I, I have students that come in and say, look, I really want to do surgery, and I want to do public policy, and I want to do sort of healthcare, I want to do the whole system like yeah, you're... Yeah. And I tell them, okay, look, if you're going to do surgery, you've got to eat, breathe, and sleep surgery. And let them know that you eat, drink, and sleep surgery. Because if they perceive that you're in it halfway, you will be like bait to the sharks and you'll get eaten alive. And there, in fact, there was one intern we had who came in and openly said, you know, I'm just doing a one-year internship because I want to go into private equity. Man, they ate him alive. It's <laughs> just like so I could have talked to him. Do not say private equity, okay? Just say I love surgery and I just want to do surgery for so every day. Anyways, I guess I guess that part of that is that the culture of surgeons means that they take it seriously. They're not yeah. joking around. Yeah. And they don't want people who are not taking it seriously. Is yeah. And I get it. Yeah. And I get it, right? But do you need to have conferences at six AM every <laughs> Tuesday and Wednesday as we, we have for fifteen years when I Really, do we need to do that? Because, okay, I'll come in a little earlier. Now I'm an attending. 
but the residents come in earlier to round, and then the interns come in before that, and the students come in before. So coming at like two thirty in the morning. Marty, my alarm the... would go off at three fifteen. Yeah, three fifteen. I'd wake up, and it would feel like this is still night. I know. And I have to just to do all my pre rounds before I could. This is just as a clerkship, third year clerkship. Yeah. It's nuts. So we ignore all the data on sleep medicine, like it's data, like you're drunk when you haven't slept. You know, we ignore it, like we're tough people. Yeah, I remember the last outbound train on the Green Line and. Boston to the Mass General was like at two two o'clock or two fifteen. You'd have to take that last outbound train to get there before the train service stopped. So it sounds like to me, I mean, what I find already so fascinating about you is that um, you know you have diverse interests, which we'll come to in your research and your book, uh, your books. Uh, but but the new book is out in paperback, um, and you you still wanted to be a surgeon. Um, and when you were in it, you were in it. I mean, when you trained, you trained. It was mm-hmm. it was you're all encompassing. Uh, but you said a number of things throughout this brief, you know, 30 minutes so far that suggest to me that you you are a reformer in the sense that you, um, uh, you, you did not embrace the surgeon's attitude that long hours make it the surgeon. Um, you did not embrace the attitude that sleep deprivation is, uh, is totally fine. Um, those are sort of progressive values within the field of surgery. Would you, would you classify yourself as sort of holding some of those views that that we can make this more humane? Yeah, absolutely. And by the way, when we make it more humane, then it's more inviting for women. You know, we've done a terrible job <clears throat> encouraging women and making it um, um, friendly to women in the field. And, there we, is, and there's data on that question that actually post ADR work week, the number of women who went into surgery actually went up in part due to restrictions on work hours. Yeah. Yeah. And, yeah. and there are departments that have seriously said, we have got to move these crazy early morning conferences because guess what? Some people have childcare. It could be a man or a woman. And if you have childcare, that means you're going to be less likely to attend at 6 a.m., right? If you've got to take the kids to school or take, get it, help get them up. And why are we punishing those people when we could do the conference at noon or at 3 o'clock? Maybe, sure, maybe a 10% fewer people will come because they're stuck in clinic. So this is an exciting, healthy conversation. Um, there's a lot of good stuff happening right now. I just wish it would move about 50 times faster. Really? Yeah, we've just got an, there's an, you know, there's an old guard. Look at our professional societies. You know, look at the, 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 um, the process. You know, we come up with a new proposal. We do a lot with appropriateness measures. You know, developing new algorithms to figure out what's a pattern of doing something too much. You're prescribing bone sparing agent A, way more than bone sparing agent A, B relative to all your peers. Yes. What's going on? And and A is more expensive. 10 times more expensive. (laughs) And more recently FDA approved, but approved on a non-inferiority study. Okay. So it's like tenosumab, Zometa or something like that. That's exactly right. Yeah. Yeah, And that's one of our measures that we published a thing on that. So it's like, um, uh, so anyway, we do these appropriateness measures. And so so this is, I now just to, orient listeners but you know you're starting to talk about your work and I think people may not get the sense that you know you've done a lot of work on I think um, ways in which too much medicine can be too much of a good thing and it can be detrimental harmful even costly and you're very interested in sort of aligning best medical care with um, appropriate prescribing with lowering cumulative health care costs fair to say yeah look the the best way to lower costs is to get a healthier population and to address overuse. And we have two problems in American healthcare right now, and that is overuse and underuse, but by far overuse dominates the marketplace. Both are real problems that hurt people, 
but by far overuse is a massive problem. And we know it drives it and we see it and it's around us and we don't say anything, but we should be offended by it, right? If we, the, the process that we're talking about of residency, surgical medicine, you know, it's, it's all the same, right? It's tough. You go into it knowing you're not gonna have a life. You make huge sacrifices. You become emotionally detached in ways that you come out a different person. And in my personal experience, I came out very burned out, but unaware that I was burned out. I felt that I was tough and it was not burned out at all. And it took a little time of little time off, sort of an extended vacation before I started the faculty job, when I, I realized that, man, I was burned out. I didn't even know it. Like, I'm a different person now than I was in the middle of that fellowship. And in that burnout period, think of sitting through an M&M conference. The first time you're a student sitting at an M&M conference and you hear about a tragedy of somebody dying a horrific death because of, say, a mis an oversight, you're shocked. You can't believe it. Your eyes pop out. And then you hear about another case and you're like, oh my God, I can't believe there's two. And then a few weeks later and months later, and then the next time you hear it, you know, the, maybe the 20th time you hear it, you're, you're kind of shocked inside, but your body doesn't react because you've kind of, now you know this happens. And then you fast forward a couple years and you, you, you have no feel, no response whatsoever. You have no feelings. Those are signs of detachment as a what mechanism by which we cope with all these difficult issues, the trauma, the difficulty, the life and death, right? You don't necessarily realize this conditioning when you're in it. Um, but we should be offended when half of women with breast cancer in a study report being harassed by medical debt collectors. We, I think we tend to say like, oh, it's, you know, the system is so messed up and that's the way it is and this stinks and that stinks and we give up. We basically surrender and that's why we see physician burnout rates at record height. Now, I personally am of the opinion what's driving physician burnout is not hard work. I think we go into medicine thinking expecting that, expecting we're going to work our asses off. What drives it is a loss of autonomy. Sure. Here's an electronic health record. It's terrible. And you can't figure it out and doesn't even have a tab for this type of stuff you do. Well, let me let me yeah. connect these two things. I mean, we, we started about your research on overuse, and then you started talking about the detachment that comes from the sort of hazing of training. Mm -hmm. But do you think maybe to tie these two together, maybe what you're what you're saying is that they are tied together, which is that we. Um, we become uh, habituated to overuse and indifferent to overuse and lofty prices because of that hazing. Because we went through that process, it's so easy to be a surgeon and say, you know what, I don't care what it costs as long as I can do it day in, day out. I'm not going to look into these issues. It's none of my business. Um, also, if we do some things that, you know, it turns out they didn't, we didn't need to do all those things, so what? There are worse errors out there, and, you know, not doing it would have been a worse error than doing it. Um, but what you're saying is that when you have that space, when you can think about it more clearly and reflect upon it, um, those are very big problems in society, and that's what makes the whole system dysfunctional. Fair to say? Yeah, and I think the conditioning that we're talking about throughout our career is this mindset that we subconsciously get, that we inherit, that you can't fix it. There's no, there's no, it's wrong, but we can't, we don't know how to fix it. We're helpless. We're civil servants now in this system. And that is, that is what my team and all of our work are passionate about changing to say 
we can fix it. Okay, COVID hits us. We're doing this insanity of not wearing masks for two months because our leadership doesn't realize that SARS-CoV-2 spreads just like SARS-CoV-1. And all of our public health officials are crammed in a press briefing room. All of them, all, they're all in this. They're crammed in this thing a month and a half into it. You know what, we can do something. My team put together a bunch of data for, for me. I put it in a New York Times piece, the first piece calling for universal masking. It was late in the spring um, epidemic curve. The first piece saying, hey, enough is enough. When was this, this was April? This was uh, April, okay. in April. And so um, then we see the insanity of, we have a life-saving vaccine. We are, we have, it's a very limited scarce supply. Yes. And we're immunizing people already immune from natural immunity. It was about at least 10% of the population then. We're, we're having them come in yes. while seniors are sitting ducks in this war. We're also immunizing 20-year-old IT workers in hospitals. Who have a case fatality rate equal or less than seasonal flu. And we are ignoring the issue that 78% of COVID hospitalizations are in people overweight and obese because we can't talk about obesity. It's fat shaming and the data is so bad coming out of the CDC that we don't even appreciate that. We're discovering things late. So when we see in our research team, all these injustices, we go out there with this, we're gonna try to fix this mentality. Sound the alarm, write, take to social media go on cable news networks, do whatever, call the experts directly. When we found that hospitals were suing patients, we got a list, we called the CEOs. It's not part of a project or a study. It's not official Johns Hopkins work. We took it off campus just in case, but we did introduce ourselves. Hi, I'm Marty McCary. I'm a physician at Johns Hopkins. We see that your hospital sued 10,000 people. We'd like, you to, we'd like to ask you to stop all lawsuits against people, patients. You know what? Some of the CEOs said yes. A lot of them dug in. Or my students said, you know what? We're gonna go and call the donors of the hospital and tell them Dang, your this hospital. Play, they, your team's playing ball, Marty. I mean, they, they are fired ball, up. Yeah. See, this is advocacy, right? And I love it. We should be offended when we see things that are not right instead of this kind of put our eyes down and oh well, this is nothing we can do. You've alluded to your team a couple times. Tell me, I who, love how is your who is your team? Who, how big is your team? Who's on your team? They're yeah. always changing, okay. but they're med students, residents, young faculty. Caitlin Hicks is a vascular surgeon. She's new on the faculty. She's a rock star. She's uh, like a rocket ship. She's you know advancing in the field with coming up with appropriateness measures in uh, vascular surgery. So you know vascular surgery. She, she gets the whole mentality. You know people. They read my book, The Price We Pay. They get fired up, they come in. Marty, I want to be a part of this. I want to join your team, I want to do something. Sometimes they have funding, sometimes we do, sometimes they'll volunteer. She's a vascular surgeon. She, you know, we ask her, is there an area of overuse or quality disparity in your field that is measurable? Yeah, some of the old school doctors are using the old ACAS trials and the trials on carotid, asymptomatic sure. carotids. Yes. It's almost out of date these days, right? Oh, I mean, it's so out of date because those studies were done before all the blood thinners and everything. So you have these, some doctors operating on every single asymptomatic person with more than 70% stenosis. Carotid artery stenosis, right? Carotid right. artery okay, stenosis. Sure. Yes. And 
So, you know, you'll have a very, very reputable department at a major high, you know, big brand university. When I say big brand, the type that's advertised at NFL games. Sure. And some of them even screening for this condition. Yeah. In direct violation of the guidelines. The guidelines. And so they, um, they find these people. You have a referral pipeline and all these different ways these patients stream in and they line them up and they're very busy doing these open carotid endarterectomies. The rest of the doctors on that in that vascular surgery department say, hey, we got all these other interventions now. And by the way, we don't believe those studies because there's a different era and it probably wasn't done properly. And these are rare events we're preventing. And so you have massive disparity. So she has, a, you know, appropriateness measure she's developed. What percent of all your carotid endarterectomies or carotid interventions are in people that are asymptomatic? Is it 5% of your practice, of your carotid practice, 2% or 90%? And if it's above a certain frequency, that's a pattern that's what we call a pattern of concern. That's where we want the insurance companies to go digging and look at the charts and do a clinical review. Get the insurance company pre-authorization monkeys off our back gold card the doctors that are doing well on the appropriateness measures which is by the way most doctors do the right thing or always try to and shunt all those expensive resources to do a deeper dive into the outliers that's what we're trying to push right now with insurance and we're winning we're getting insurance companies to do it we're just trying to build out more appropriateness measures i guess from here listening to you talk um i guess i would say um one of the hallmarks of your research it sounds like is just the that it, it, it is very much on the on the the, the side of the active side of doing things. You know, it isn't just research that's supposed to sit in a publication for publication's sake, although you do do that. Uh, it's meant to change practice in the short term, fair to say? Yeah, I'm so sick of publishing in the medical literature. You, okay. <laughs> it's, it's, it's just such a joke. Somehow, three buddies of a journal editor are gonna eyeball something, usually looking at the names in the institution to make their decision, and then they're going to provide reviews, which either could be, we, we have reviewers that have given us reviews where they clearly just don't understand the methodology because Dori Segev, who's this incredible epidemiologist, MD, PhD, yeah. yeah. Transplant surgeon. He even teaches a coding and stata course. So like, he, not only is he good at surgery, by all accounts, he's also a world-class dancer, I hear. Yeah. Uh, and he, <laughs> and he, yeah, I hear he's actually like wins awards. And, and he teaches this programming course, which is really nitty gritty tech stuff. Okay, go on. Swing dance, uh, Lindy Hop, champion of the UK, him and his wife. Yeah, yeah. No, he's a true genius. He's a true genius. This guy is a genius. Everyone knows it. He does advanced research methodology. He'll use a, um, a random forest model instead of a linear regression model and get even better results. And they don't understand, the reviewers don't know what a random forest model is. This is for his picking people for transplant sort of thing? This, done some studies on this is some of our collaborative work okay. that him and I have done. We're good friends. So we did a piece on risk factors of COVID mortality. Okay, okay, okay. okay. We did the largest study of risk factors of COVID mortality in the middle of the pandemic in the summer, in June. It took CMS, Center for Medicare and Medicaid, two months to get us permission to analyze the data we already had access to because it was a new user agreement while people are dying every day. It took two, two months. I had to call the director of CMS. And then we do the analysis. I call a journal editor and I say, hey, we got this, the largest study of risk factors of COVID death ever performed. Um, I wanna give you first dibs at it. 
well, uh, we'll take a look, but I don't know if this is really interesting. Okay, no, again, it's not like, you know, half a million Americans are dying. And then um, they get it, look at it. Another journal gets it, looks at it. You can't submit to multiple journals. Yeah, that's, that's their stupid that's, rules. That's and um, it goes to seven journals, and it takes a year to get published, almost a full year during a health emergency. These are the problems that we look at and we say, we want to fix these problems. I can go to the Wall Street Journal, write something in 48 hours, where they're going to have intense fact-checking by the editors, okay? And it's going to be as valid as any peer-review thing. They're going to, I mean, they're going to hunt these... When, think about it. When a New York Times writer writes a story, are they just writing their opinion? No, they're they're writing on facts. Course, They've got yes. standards, right? I mean, when when they write an opinion article in the New York Times, it still must adhere to a strict set of rules, very strict. And I've yeah. written only I think one editorial many years ago. Um, it is they edit the hell out of it. It's oh, much yeah. more rigorous than even peer review um, in many places. Uh, it, it's an argumentative essay. It has certain rules. But you know what, Marty? I want to pause you one second because now you're. I think this is the juxtaposition I want to. I want to push you on. I'm kind of very curious myself, and I think you know listeners might be curious. Okay, um, many of the things you have outlined to me sound like a very progressive uh, um, advocacy agenda. You are interested in getting hospitals to no longer litigate against patients who can't pay bills. You are interested in getting these these old antiquated surgical specialties who are very comfortable doing lucrative procedures to stop doing them when they are doing way more than their peers and to use those benchmarks as a perhaps better way to police um, you know insurance excess you are interested in more humane work hours more humane residency conditions okay now the juxtaposition you you do public commentary on Fox News. You write yep. in the Wall Street Journal. Yep. What is going on, Marty? People are going to say, <laughs> right. you know, so it's so easy to peg you because you're in yeah. those institutions. Yep. Marty is a right-wing guy. He's a hard right-wing guy. Everything you have said up until this point is nothing close to a hard right-wing agenda. It is a very progressive agenda. But you yep. probably, how do you think of yourself? You're apolitical. Yeah, I'm nonpartisan. And look, Fox News invited me to come on their network after I was highly critical of many public health officials on other networks. And then they said, hey, would you like to come talk about COVID on Fox? And I said, sure. And they said, you know, we'd, we'd like to put you on a lot, but if you come on, if we make this investment to have you come on a lot, um, this is your network though. You, you, you don't go on the other networks. And I said, I, I understand that. And I thought long and hard about it. And I thought, I feel like you know, the reason to go in the media is if you feel strongly that there is something that needs to be said that is not being said. And I felt like it was a good platform. And Fox has been good to me. They have said, you say whatever you believe to be true. Don't worry about any political aspect of it. Criticize whoever you need to. Um, and they never asked me any litmus test questions. And it's funny because the people who know I go on Fox, sometimes they don't like me because I, I go on Fox. Sure. And the people who listen to me on Fox don't like me because I'm not following the, the pure conservative narrative. Yes. And so it's a very lonely place in the middle sometimes. But, you know, um, I can't tell you the thousands of pieces of correspondence I've gotten, emails, messages. Thank you for being a voice of reason. What you're saying makes so much sense. And that, to me, is so gratifying. Similarly, the Wall Street Journal approached me and said, would you like, I, I've written that piece that went viral in the New York Times calling for universal masking. Took a lot of heat for that. I'm used to it. After a while, you don't really care if people are criticizing you, right? 
No one ever I'm, comes I'm back. I'm getting there, Marty. I'm getting there. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. So you just got to stay off Twitter a little bit, I think. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And yeah, that's yeah. what I, you know, that's how I find it can, you can really drag you down. But, um, yeah, I think you're right. I mean, you have to, but, but, but I mean, just, just to finish with, I mean, I, I, I'm sorry. To I'm independent. Up. I'm independent. <laughs> but I guess, I guess I think, I think this is the part that I think people don't see, um, which is that your views are, are, are very hard to put in a bucket, Marty. Like you just, like you just <laughs> said, April, you came out in favor of universal masking. You came out this spring, um, arguing that by the end of April, April 30th, we would be at herd immunity, which by the way, nobody knows what herd immunity is. It doesn't mean zero cases. It means are not less than one. Uh, and to be honest, you might even have been right. I don't know. We'll, we'll find out, you know, but you're probably not far from the number. Uh, the, you know, anyway, I don't want to get on and on about it because everyone's going to get their heads exploded. Um, <laughs> right. You've been critical of Fauci. Yeah. Okay. It's heretical on the left to be critical of Fauci. Yeah. Um, but, but you're for universal masking early. Mm -hmm. You know, these are positions that don't neatly fall in a camp or a bucket or a tribe. Um, and as you're saying, you go on Fox News, people are angry that you're on it. Uh, uh, however, they listen to what you say, and then the listeners who are used to a certain <laughs> narrative are angry that you're saying that. It, yeah. it's, it is sad uh, that I cut you off. Are you going to no, say No, no, I, I guess it, just, yeah, you were about to say it's sad that we're so tribal. They want, everyone wants to size you up, and I'm sure they do this with you too because I've loved the stuff you put out. And, you know, I've even been, you know, a little curious, like, hmm, is he, is he a progressive liberal? Is that why he's a, is he a conservative? Is it? And when I got confused that, you know what, none of his stuff pegs to any political party, I thought, I love this guy. I love Benai. I mean, he can just speak it. That's what we need. Too many people are afraid of what people think. To be very honest with you, let me tell you how the media works. Doctors are interviewing for jobs in the White House on the media. They don't want to say anything that's not supportive of an administration on both sides. It's on both sides. This is a crazy game. And when you listen to folks, they're 100% down one path or another. And Fauci takes a little swipe at, at Trump early on when he was testifying about testing, uh, COVID testing on a, in a congressional hearing. And he says, if you remember, he says, let's be honest, it's been a failing. Okay, people thought testing was the savior of COVID, I, I, did, I had other opinions. They thought, oh, if we could test, do a billion tests a day, we could dig ourselves out of this. Right. No, what are you gonna do when someone in New York on contact tracing tests positive and the contact tracer says, where have you been in the last three days? Well, I took the L train through Grand Central and testing is a piece, no, isn't no, that right? But, but you're, let me just articulate that point. Your point is that one of the things people who were proponents of contact tracing missed is there are some contacts you cannot contact trace. Can't there's too many special. people. And also when there's a certain rate of prevalence in a population, you can't do it. You don't have as many contact tracers as it would take to trace. And so there are limits to these tools. They work well when you want to staunch out cases from seven to zero. They don't work well when it's, you know, 20% of the population. That's exactly right. They, they are extremely effective early on when you're dealing with a couple cases like South Korea was able to like they contact traced like most people in a church of like 4,000 sure. and they found 60 cases in the corner. It was amazing. What and they it did. also depends on the culture. You need a culture where people are going to fess up who they talk to. In this culture, I hate to admit it, you know, this is America. And to be honest, I don't like you asking me too many questions. I mean, that's just an American attitude. <laughs> and a lot of people don't like asking. And in fact, actually, you've seen there are many reports of contact tracing where people are unwilling to disclose all the places they've been. Um, 
There are undocumented people in this country. They're very, I mean, rightly, I think they yeah. will worry that somebody will come and potentially deport them. I mean, you have to have some sense of where you are. And so this is a good point. Yeah. Okay. So, so, so Fauci we, takes, yes, a, Fauci, you know, yes. he basically says, look, testing has been a failing. And this was a talking point on the, you know, the anti, you know, Trump administration side that, you know, they failed on testing, they failed on testing. It, it's a little ironic, uh, and I'll tell you why, but the, the Fauci takes a little swipe and it becomes a darling of sort of the, the left. Now, I like Fauci, but I'll be honest with you, when a group of us in late February, before the pandemic really hit, were running around the country, I had sort of gotten religion from a long conversation I had with an infectious diseases doctor. And it, it was very clear to me that what was happening in Italy was gonna be global. There was no way it was contained. It was seated and I did enough, just because I'm the editor of MedPage today, I had to read so many things that were coming through. And I, I really got scared. We didn't know if we were gonna lose 1% of our nation's children. I took to, to um, you know, CNBC and a lot of these networks and I basically said, we've got to get ready. We've got to shut down South by Southwest. A bunch of us doctors, you know, trying to use our platform and my, you know, with, with Hopkins behind me to say, um, please cancel South by Southwest. Music festival. Music festival in Austin brings a quarter million people together from around the world in March, right? Please, please, please cancel. Mardi Gras, please, we go into the mayors, right? This is a cool thing about having these relationships. We can get right to these people. And we're going around the country begging the NCAA, do not do, do it's a massive fight. And you know what I keep hearing from all these people? What Dr. Fauci just said that the only restriction is for old people not to go on cruises. You know, and I remember de Blasio said, go out there on St. Paddy's Day and have fun. Yeah, Pelosi and everybody. It wasn't a political thing. All these people were on this group think. And that's that's what our team is fighting. If our team is doing one thing, we're trying to fix healthcare by redesigning it. That is that is the focus. When people say, what do you do? Trying to redesign healthcare in every way. How are you doing it? By addressing the group think. There was so much group think going on with COVID and I had called into the White House. I had some relationships there from working on the price transparency um, bipartisan executive order, which is a wonderful thing that's coming to, coming to action now. And I told them, hey, you know, I." This COVID thing is going to be bad. What's happening in Italy is going to happen all across the United States. And they would politely take my call and they would tell me on the follow-up call, we talked to Dr. Fauci and he thinks we're going to be okay. So what Dr. Fauci did is he he made a mistake. He's a good man. By the way, he's one of the nicest gentlemen you've ever met. He cares deeply about this country. I firmly believe that. And I always point that out when people try to take a kick at him when he's down. He's lived through SARS-CoV-1 and saw it peter out in China, and he hedged his bet. As you know, as a, we're oncologists, it's easier to give assurance than it is to really warn of something dangerous. He gave assurances, he really hedged his bet, it was gonna be like SARS-CoV-1 and peter out. He was wrong. The group, a group of doctors from Johns Hopkins did a conference call, infectious diseases doctors, did a conference call with a group of doctors from Wuhan in January, when Wuhan was in the middle of their thing. And you know what the doctors in Wuhan told the Hopkins doctors on this conference call? Please wear masks. Masks are very important. They got burned on SARS, MERS. They were ready to mask up quick, right? Asian countries. Yeah. So I guess, I guess, I mean, I think what you're trying to point out is that, uh, and I also know I've met him a few times uh, because I actually think I presented a patient to him once, Fauci. And I think he's, as you say, nice guy, good guy, smart guy. No, 
person, how good or smart, is ever 100% right. Everyone makes mistakes. Everyone's, you know, some things are right, some things are wrong. Um, uh, it's important to not have fealty to a person, but have fealty to your own beliefs, your own thoughts, your own reason, and science, which is different. And that's what you're arguing for, which is why you can be simultaneously. Um, I think the other, the other thing that, I mean, there's a couple things that I think people have rightly criticized Anthony about, which is one um, lab leak hypothesis. He said there's not a chance in the world it could be, and of course now every day goes on more people like, well, it's possible, we've got to look into that. Uh, the other thing is after vaccination, what changes, you know, because they're variants, we should not take off our masks, was his, you know, he, he testified in front of Congress saying that, and he had the notorious battle with Rand Paul. Um, mm -hmm. Now, of course, you know, the, the CDC <laughs> said, okay, well, you know, it turns out it actually, you know, and I came out with that position very strongly. Um, the other point I wanted to make was to your point about where to publish. I agree with you that peer review has a time and place. There's some types of issues that are meant for peer review. You know, there's some types of problems and some types of papers. But when it is a global pandemic and you want to get your idea out there in a timely way to shape the conversation, um, you can't go to journals. Uh, they're not ad adept at it. You have to go someplace faster. So I published, you know, many articles for you all in MedPage Today, but also some in STAT and um, The Atlantic and, you know, other outlets, just like you're writing for other outlets too. Um, you have to go to those places because it's the only place agile enough to respond to something that changes literally hour by hour, um, day by day. And I think that the false belief is the one you allude to, which is that everything in the New England Journal is gospel and everything in, you know, um, in, in, a, in a newspaper uh, is, is, quote, not peer-reviewed opinion. Right. That is such a false dichotomy. There are many journals that are rubbish. You know, once you get out of the top 10 journals, you're almost in rubbish territory. <laughs> they're, they're, you know, their review processes are very lax. And yeah. then the top newspapers of the country, the New Yorker, the New York Times, the, Washington, the Wall Street Journal, the Washington Post, they have a very high set of standards. Um, they don't get it all right either, uh, but it certainly should not be disparaged. Uh, it's the only place to write. And the joke is on the doctor with peer review because the doctors reviewing are not being paid by a private company that's profiting from this process, right? And, and somehow profiting it's profiting tremendously, and, billions from this. And they're tricking us into thinking, hey, this is an honor that yes. you're peer reviewing. And if you peer review, will it'll increase the likelihood that your science makes the bar to be, what kind of a game is that? And by the way, if you look at the these editorial boards, a lot of them lack any diversity. And I think there's value to that perspective. And I'm not just talking about racial diversity, I'm talking about age diversity. And my, my millennials think differently. They shape our research. Um, and if you talk to them, I remember meeting like the editor of the New England Journal uh, several years back. And I said, oh, yeah, you know, I met so-and-so, one of your other editors. Oh, yeah, he was my roommate in residency. And, um, and I met, you know, and I met this guy, too. Oh, yeah, he was... He was a fellow with me at the Brigham, and they're like, like half of them were cardiologists from the Brigham. You know, it's like, you guys are the most non-diverse group, and you're the gatekeeper of all knowledge. Uh, so nothing magical happens when they convert your article to a PDF. And so I love the preprint server. I love MedPage today. I love the New York Times and the Journal and the Atlantic. And this is the new. This is the future, right? You listen to some of the. Um, uh, uh, the work that people are doing, they're not going down that road. Now there's a role for it, but maybe they can review in 24 hours instead of six months. Um, the NIH was not able to pivot one dime of their $40 billion budget last year to COVID to answer the most basic questions. How does it spread? 
How many people are asymptomatic? When are you most contagious? Do masks work? The most basic questions the country was asking, they were funding research on Mexican hairless dogs and all kinds of nonsense. With $40 billion, they could not pivot $1 to answer the most basic clinical they're, research they're questions. They're a bureaucratic institution. But they, but they did receive an influx of funding in the original coronavirus bill, and they were able to give some. They have a lot of coronavirus funds, but it wasn't the money that they already had, right? Long haul, yeah. They're, they're pouring like all this money into long haul right, symptoms. Pour, yeah. yeah. Good I'm, luck. I, I agree with you. I think that that's a very fraught thing to study. But I guess your point, your, I mean, your criticism here, if I'm to articulate it, it's, um, uh, and again, something you said is also puts you in more buckets than, you know, you, you have a crying call for diversity in editorial boards that are very sort of old boys club. Um, you, you know, you, you've talked about uh, work hours being more humane and more inclusive. Um, Yet you've also talked about how Tony Fauci is not, you know, a, a, a saint, and he got some things wrong. Um, you know, so I think, I think, you know, I think this has been very interesting. I, I wonder, the last thing I want to talk to you about, I mean, I think it's very interesting because it just really shows that, you know, I think people talk about you like they know you. Um, they don't know you at all, and you're very diverse and thinker, and, and you, you don't fit in any bucket. And I think that's what is very difficult for a lot of people to process, because we need simple narratives. Marty's on in Wall Street Journal and Fox. Marty bad. <laughs> right. You know, I just want to say one thing, and I don't know if you want to comment on it. But you know, this the, this Facebook censoring your. Thing. Oh yeah. Oh yeah. god. It's cool. I, I kind of like being banned by Facebook. <laughs> <laughs> Growing up as a kid who goes to be a doctor and a surgeon, you never thought you'd be the the bad kid who's getting banned, right? <laughs> You've always wanted to be bad, but now okay. Well, yeah, you know, yeah. I I just thought it was so it's so offensive, Marty. It's so offensive. I don't think people understand. You know, why should, why should it offend you? I mean, sure, there are people who will agree with you, and there'll be people who still are uncertain and will wait to see, you know, what, what turns out to be the case. And there might even be people who disagree with you. Sure, I get that. I, every issue, there's going to be somebody who disagrees with us. But the real question is, do we believe that a multinational company like Facebook should have the power to censor both a professor, a tenured professor at Johns Hopkins University, and the Wall Street Journal's editorial board in their due process and facts. And that to me is, if you think that it should be the case, you are on a very dark path because what is to stop it from being your cause um, you know, in the future? And to be honest, there are two things you talked about. One is, you, know, you wrote your op-ed about when we might be at herd immunity. Okay, people didn't like that because I think there was a narrative, which is people want it to be very far in the future so they can justify restrictions, which they are fans of. I mean, that's that's just a fact that some people are fans of these restrictions. Makes them feel better. Um, sure, so that's why I think they push back on you. But you also are writing provocatively about hospitals suing indigent patients to pay money. In the future, those hospitals might send you the power of Facebook to censor an article that says, that, that exposes their malfeasance. Do we want to live in a world this sword can cut in any direction? What are your thoughts, Mark? Yeah, I agree. Look, people want to size you up, but um, I think that if the CDC has lost credibility during the pandemic, I think big tech has lost a lot of credibility also. Um, you know, if you go to the Johns Hopkins website and um, the COVID information website and read the section on herd immunity that's been up during the entire pandemic. It says herd immunity defines it as it says herd immunity is when a majority of the population is immune. 
And it explains that the more people that have immunity, the slower it spreads. It's not binary, right? And what happened was it came out and people thought, this is, he's suggesting it's going to be eradicated. Yes, no, but that's not what it is. Right. There, even with herd immunity threshold being met, there can be overshoot, meaning there are additional cases. But it also means that the, the pandemic will eventually die out. r naught is less than one. Um, and it is not static, as you point out. It varies depending on how people are mixing. If they start mixing all of a sudden in different age groups in ways they didn't mix before, um, not everyone being vaccinated is equally important for herd immunity. Some nodes, people who are much more um, uh, uh, in touch with more people are more vital. Go on. Yeah, no, yeah, I, I cut you off. But not, you're, you're making the point that herd immunity is a, a complex, dynamic process, and you are, are, are taking a stab at when it might be hit. The point of the article, which, by the way, I think the, the projection was basically correct. I mean, factor in that millions of vaccine appointments were, were canceled in April because of the J&J uh, issue and a prolonged 12-day pause, which should have been a four to six hour pause with the same result, the same advisory. Um, that hurt hesitancy a lot. But the point of the article was that our public health officials have been ignoring natural immunity from prior infection. Yes, yes, right. And you saw that with the vaccine rollout. We talked about that. We started giving the vaccine. People already had the infection, giving them two doses. Absurd. Why did the public health establishment, not just public health, establishment, the medical establishment mostly ignore natural immunity? Because it didn't fit their New England Journal of Medicine randomized controlled trial PDF publication. There was no country randomized to natural immunity. It didn't fit this model of evidence that we painted ourselves in a corner to define that we can only learn from things with a randomized controlled trial. And you know what? There's no randomized controlled trial to evaluate if parachutes work out of a plane. And sometimes there's clinical wisdom. There's doctors and nurses on the ground who will tell you things that are true. Sometimes we don't just learn from groups, we learn from outliers. We learn from individuals. If you're a patient, by the way, you're more interested in the outlier survivor than you are in the group. There's a patient with multi stage four glioblastomy multiforme years ago at Hopkins, before I got there. And the patient is still alive. Now, as you know, it has a, sure. you know, very, yeah, yeah, a year and a half, you know, maximum. Yeah. Um, in trials with yeah. Temidar and RT and surgery, yeah. Go that's ahead. right, that's yeah. right. So this patient had surgery and long-term survival. They reviewed the path many times in case it was a mistake. Turns out the patient had an abscess in the surgical resection bed after, after surgery. Mm -hmm. They removed the bone plate. They mm -hmm. cleared the abscess. You know what? I don't know, but maybe something happened. Maybe some. Maybe the immune system was triggered. Maybe the bacteria. Coley's toxin. 1891, William Coley injected streptococcus um, uh, 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 slurries that he had made into um, sarcoma, and he did have some response. Your point is well taken. It may be immunotherapy that you don't fully understand. We can learn from that, yeah, right? Sure. We can, it's not just randomized controlled trials. But, but, but to, and to close that loop here, I mean, I think the strongest evidence you have that this is not necessary is that like, look, um, there was a fixed supply of vaccine. You want to give, well, there's two arguments. One is you don't need to give two doses to everyone right away. You give one dose to everyone. That's another argument that is very sound. Two, you want to start with people who are most vulnerable of the disease. You can write an equation, which is probability of getting the disease, probability of spreading the disease, and probability of dying from the disease or having a bad consequence. The thing is that last term, 
depends on age. And it depends on age so much, it's going to carry the whole equation. So you start with old people, and if you have recovered from SARS-CoV-2, there are a num there are already a number of publications that show those people get reinfected, very, very low rates of reinfection. Um, and if they get reinfected, it's almost never very, very severe. And those were, I think that's the strongest argument, that they can go to the back of the line while we vaccinate more people and build up the cumulative immunity. And here's my argument at that time is that, okay, we don't have the, the big giant trials on natural immunity being effect, effective, yes, but open your eyes. We are not seeing reinfections. Listen to practicing doctors in America at the bedside around the world in Italy where they had an outbreak before us. Where are the reinfections? It's like Bigfoot. Everyone thinks that they know somebody who may have seen it. And the reality is they're very rare. And when they occur, they're mild. It's just like vaccinated immunity. And there's more data on natural immunity than there is on vaccinated immunity in terms of the length of that data. I see. Right? Okay. And then to close the loop, you are going to say this, that Facebook censoring you oh. and, and ignoring <laughs> this idea. I get all excited. Sorry. No, 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 <laughs> so, um, so anyway, ignoring natural immunity is a big deal. It yes, changes yes. the whole time frame, course, right? When I put out that, yes. when I put that article out, they were talking, this, these were serious high-level conversations by the president and public health officials about Christmas and 2022 and yeah. maybe 4th of July, a small, right? And what happened was there was a big bill that I, didn't, I did not anticipate that was going to drop the largest spending bill in U.S. history, $3 trillion, yeah, called a right. COVID relief. Oh, but this right, was before yes, the yes, infrastructure. Yeah, right. COVID, COVID relief. Yeah, yeah. And just in the days before the final vote, here's some chump from Johns Hopkins that says, based on natural immunity plus vaccine immunity, we're gonna be at extremely low levels by April, May, and in time for a normal summer. Then, then it became a political article. I see, right? I see. that's how you view it. You view it as it was a threat to uh, ongoing legislation. That's what I was told by those who didn't like it. They were like, look, we're trying to get this bill passed and this is not helping us. That's interesting. Because well, DC is a small town. You know, I think uh, that's something that listeners may not be aware of, but sometimes <laughs> things like this actually do play a role. The last thing I want to talk to you about, Marty, our time yeah. is going to be up in a minute, but I want to talk to you about your book, The Price We Pay. You, you alluded to one of the themes of the book, which was hospitals pursuing through litigation people who didn't pay. Uh, but that's not the only theme of the book. The theme of the book, um, you know, it's really about ways in which our healthcare is misaligned, um, ways in which we spend too much money. It's it's the over it's an overuse book, um, in, in a sort of a proud genre of overuse books. I wonder if you might just give us, you know, the high level things in the book, the things you think are like really sort of the things that jumped out at you most. I think the book is about the redesign of healthcare, and it's through quality and pricing failures and it, it tries to you know, my, my favorite movie was the big short because it took a complex subject and made it consumable and to me it was embarrassing that none of us as physicians as practicing physicians my, myself as a you know practicing surgical oncologist could explain the business of medicine the business of healthcare and even worse we we do not know about the business of healthcare but we perceive that we're experts on it, which is the worst combo, right? The doctor at the dinner party. <laughs> That's right. Yeah. That's right. So you ask somebody, how do we cut healthcare costs? You ask 10 doctors, you get 10 totally different answers. Primary care doctor is going to say we need it's the medical home. Cardiologist is going to say lower CHF readmissions. OB docs are going to say deal with malpractice lawyers. And it's the Wild West. And the reality is we don't have the business of 101 on healthcare. And I wanted to create a book that would explain the business of medicine in a way that's fun and story-based and every point would come so you'd leave at the end of that book 
feeling like now I know exactly every aspect of the healthcare system. I may not know it in an incredible deep dive, but I know how the landscape and exactly how it works and what the problems are. And in summary, the problems are pricing failures, inappropriate care, and care coordination. And a lot of that ties into the middlemen in there, which we can cut through, by the way. We can cut through it. And I, each chapter has a disruptor who cut through the middle layer, cut through the waste, and redesigned healthcare in some amazing way that we can do. This is not a theoretical, it's not a health policy book. These are steps that we can do in our everyday practice. And that's why I highlighted the students so much because my students were like, hey, we can fix this, we can do it. I'm like, wait a minute, that's a big test. No, we can do this. And so, you know, going to insurance companies to deal with pre-authorization and get gold carding, get the price transparency, direct contracts with employers, direct primary care, um, treating back pain in primary care with more ice and physical therapy than surgery and opioids, dealing with the appropriateness of care, talking about food as medicine, the microbiome, natural child delivery, all this, these things that we can fix that are right in front of us that we don't talk about, that we need to talk about. That's why I wrote the, the book, The Price We Pay, and I'm really excited about this new paperback because I've got an update in it about COVID where I look back on COVID and all my adventures. <laughs> this, this, this is, uh, this sounds terrific. Uh, I got I gotta pick up the new one cause I want to, I want to hear about COVID and the adventures. Um, <laughs> Marty, we didn't get to talk about one thing. We'll save it for a future date. Okay. It's the third leading cause of death of the paper. Yes, yes, yes. <laughs> but you got some pushback on and I'll be, yes, I'll be honest. Yes, yep. I'm one of the people who pushed back there, yep. but you know what I like, um, about everything we've talked about is, uh, you know, you've taken your stands, diverse topics, um, and uh, and we need more people to take their stands. You know, um, wherever you may fall on any of these issues, I think um, the lesson I take from you is um, you didn't have anyone whose career you emulated. You just did your own thing. You don't follow anyone um, in terms of a tribalistic view on issues. You, you, you pick and choose on different issues where you fall. Um, and to some degree, it ties to what you said, I think, at the beginning which is that those of us who have always felt a little bit like an outsider and an observer, maybe sometimes that trait carries forward. And in all of these policy things, we still are a little bit of an outsider and observer. And we're not trying to join any team or root for any side, but rather just call it like we see it wherever we can find it. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, that was quite an adventure. You know, I think as scientists, if you really want to be honest, you have to, you have to acknowledge when you're wrong and change your view based on the data. We should, we should have been doing that during COVID the whole time. But instead, people dig in, right? They become entrenched. No, we just felt like, why are we quoting the Institute of Medicine number, 100,000 deaths a year for medical error, for 30 years? Like, has the number not changed? So we did an update review article. People think it was an original analysis. No, it was a review of like four studies that, yeah. That's right. right. Four key studies. And it was, you know, it was like, hey, here's a bunch of numbers. Here's where the range, it gave a range. And in that range, it would probably rank as three or four. A year later, a year later, it came out that opioids that were prescribed, that should not have been prescribed, were the number one cause of death in people under 50 in America. So... I think we have have to have the humility um, in both directions, sure. right? And so, um, anyway, guess, we the, the, yeah. No, I mean, your point is well taken, which is that you know you're talking to somebody who believes it is a it is a grave problem, and and you get you're right about the opioids. It came out of nowhere, and, and it is a tremendous loss of life. Marty McCary, <laughs> thank you so much for doing this. Great to see you. It's great I, to see you. This has been a great discussion. 
love talk, chatting with you. Keep up the great work. Love all your stuff and uh, look forward to chatting more. Thank you so much. Thanks for doing this and we'll do it again sometime. Great. Love to. You've been listening to season three of Plenary Session. Plenary Session is produced by Kiana Klossner. Music by Ian Straley and Audrey Tran. The views expressed on Plenary Session are those of whoever said it and no one else. Plenary Session is not medical advice. Follow us on Twitter at plenary underscore session. Until next time.